0: In this episode, we are focused on the lion reintroduction undertaken a couple of years previously and the follow-up monitoring the team are doing now. Willem, the lead conservation biologist for the ongoing monitoring at Zambezi Delta Safaris, analyzes satellite data points to plan target locations for the day's collaring efforts.
1: I've got a a. 2am upload from one of the Tempe, Tempe Tigers. She might still be in the same pan, so we can just have a look there. No telemetry. Then the one female, I've got an eight o'clock upload from this morning. Uh, What's the one that's on the border with Katara Ten. No telemetry. Then I've got a male upload from like now. But it's like I actually want to colour one of the Saabi males. So we are in the process of checking. Uh, some of the most recent uploads from our lines um, and with this we'll be able to determine the GPS location of, of the lines, the, the various prides and um, and hopefully get a recent upload so that we can go out and track this line. Our goal is to try and collar, recolor one of these lines um, and yeah, you know, we just hope that one of the, the uploads are, are nice and fresh. Um, we are yeah, just about to get an afternoon upload. So we're just gonna have a look now and see if that comes through.
0: And how often do you get them?
1: So with these collars, um, you, can, you can set the, the frequency at which the, the GPS uploads come through. Um, at the moment, most of the line collars are set on every four hours. And, um, and that's fairly sufficient for us to determine where the lines are moving. Um, and so, yeah, right here you can actually see the various locations of the animals, so our target lioness at the moment is this female and we've actually we've had an upload from her from lunchtime, so this is, this is good news.
0: You are listening to the Into the Wilderness podcast, a Modern Huntsman production and the last episode in a special series presented by the Cabela Family Foundation. This was just the most recent work on the 24 lion reintroduction project which had been successfully completed a couple of years before the cheetah relocation we had come here to witness. Ivan Carter explained the gravity of what they had achieved bringing lions back to this landscape.
2: Our translocation was the largest number of lions ever moved in one translocation and regained the largest area that was devoid of lions. We put two and a half million acres of wild lion habitat back on the map with our translocation. That's, That's never been done before. And, you know, when you look at it, I'm a very practical thinking person. There are many, many, many reintroductions that have failed. Five lions here, four lions there, three lions there, eight lions there. Why do you think we brought 24? Because we knew we were going to lose some. We practical... We can take the hard truth on the end of the nose, and we know that you're going to lose a bunch. So, by bringing eighteen females and six males, we lost one male within two weeks of releasing him. He, he was exploring his territory and he walked into a snare, and we lost him six weeks in. You know, and so, so you start looking, then you go, "Is this thing actually going to succeed?" Imagine if we only had two males. You now are relying on one male to somehow survive for three years before his offspring can breed it's destined to fail but by bringing enough and so that's why it's the largest cheetah translocation ever we're going to bring a whole bunch next year as well because in reality you cannot start and expect three or four delicate females to exist for five years before their kids can breed it's not going to happen they're a delicate vulnerable animal And so, so I think that a few things. Rather than uh, another thing, we very, we very proud of Byron. And you're going to laugh when I say this. Both for the cheetah and for the lion translocation, as big a step as it was, there wasn't a single meeting in a boardroom, not even one. (laughs) Really? There was meetings with the community, Mm. there was meetings with the vets, but nobody sat around a boardroom table having a meeting about the meeting, because we don't have one. We don't have an office. We just have practical thinking conservationists on the front line who take those conservation dollars and turn them into wins. And I think that's what makes it unusual. But simply putting game back in an area where it once existed
0: is not really enough for successful conservation. And in an area which is ultimately a hunting concession, there was a huge effort going into the ongoing science. I asked Mark Haldane why this was important.
3: I think that... We've actually come out pretty unscathed with uh, with the uh, rabid anti-hunters because look, they've got nothing to really attack us on because everything we've done here is is scientifically backed up. I mean, you take Willem for argument's sake, or or, or Joao the veterinarian, or Vincent for that matter. None of those guys are hunters. No. I mean, mm-hmm. they'll they'll shoot a reed back to feed a sick lion or whatever, but they're not hunters by heart. They're not out there wanting to hunt everything, but they back the model 100%. And I think the reason is, is that the science, if if Willem comes in and says to me, Mark, you're shooting too many buffalo, and this is what science says, you can take X percentage off and this is our population, we need to drop it, I'm gonna do what he says. Otherwise, it's an absolutely pointless operation. So we are using his scientific numbers to justify everything we're doing on our takeoff side. Yeah,
4: which is definitely not the case for every outfitter. No,
3: it's not. I mean, but we've got a long-term vision here. Sure. You know, I'm 56 now. I still want to be bugging people around the campfire here at 80. (laughs) And it, it needs to carry on with the same trend. We're going to stop seeing the increases that we've seen shortly because of the because we pretty much stocked to capacity now. Um, right now, you guys see all this long grass. What the hell is he talking about? Come and look at this place in October. It's like a golf course. You know, everything's been just grazed been, down. Been grazed down heavily. Mm. The buffalo move deeper and deeper into the swamps as the water recedes, but uh, it gets it gets grazed. So, yeah, I think that on our plains game numbers, uh, we'll definitely see see them leveling off within the next couple of years. The buffalo prior to the war were at 45,000, but many of the scientists said they were totally overpopulated and they were actually quite a, a sickly bunch because of the numbers. Um, so where they'll be allowed to go to or what management will come in for them, I don't know. But I would imagine we can still, we can still increase the buffalo another 10,000, I'm sure, in the delta
0: and, of course, now that you've, got, you've actually got a predator of the buffalo here now as well, which we will have, help balance that.
3: We have. And time will tell because uh, predators will typically take the, the prey species that, number one, is going to feed them the easiest. And, number two, they have the least chance of being injured from. Which isn't buffalo for either. Which them, isn't buffalo say, for yeah. either. So when you've got this huge population of plains game, they're probably going to lean towards that. If you look at places like Botswana, there's prides of lions that specialize on buffalo. But go to that area and there's not a lot of other game. So I believe it would be a while before we see them specializing on the buffalo. Buffalo started for the delta at about 1,200, the first game counts. We're close to 25,000 today. Um, Going on to the smaller, just my block, Sable, we had 44 we knew of. We are around about 3,000. Zebra, we knew of five only. We're about 800 today.
0: Did you uh, augment that? Never, not? ever introduced oh, anything
3: wow. except for the lions and the cheetahs. Oh, gee. That's it, yeah. So everything, everything is, has come on its own. The waterbuck, we knew we had about 20 or 30. You know, today, I guess we've got about 6,000 in, in the block. The reedbuck, I wouldn't know where to start to count them. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot. Yeah.
4: There's a lot. We,
3: we do a delta count ourselves every year. And government does a uh, – sorry, we do a floodplain count ourselves, which is just our floodplain in Katari 11. And then government every second year does the whole delta, which we're very privileged that we do the flying for them. So we get to see um, everywhere. Cool. But our, our, our floodplain count is an area of just over 100,000 acres. And um, we've been doing it since the lions were released. So we can monitor the impact of the lions on the game. And so far no no change and we sit around about thirteen thousand animals just on that open open uh, grassy floodplain area. So it, it gives you a bit of an indication of where it is today. Uh, I guess the only thing that didn't come back on its own was, was you know, was the lions. And we've spoken about it for many, many years about lions, and I always put the brakes on. Um, to bring them back. Yeah. Uh is that because
0: you were worried about the game population? Uh, absolutely, because that's your revenue. That's our revenue. That's how you sustain yeah. all of the stuff you've just been talking about. Yeah. That's how you pay for it.
3: And, and I believe we waited for the right moment. Mm-hmm. When we brought the lions in, it was the time that our game was spilling out onto our neighboring areas, which I think is great. That's the way it should happen. But it was it was the right time, um, and we're now coming into the third year now, and our game numbers have, have held steady. So we believe it was it was it was the right time.
0: After an unsuccessful attempt to collar a lion in the previous day, I set off again, sitting beside Dr. Joal Armada in the back of the helicopter. As we flew towards the last GPS ping from the collar, he loaded his tranquilizing darts. Willem explained the logistics of pulling this off. It's an amazing feat of aviation. I mean, we had three helicopters in the sky today. You're... You're tracking somebody with a dog, and like explain that whole thing from getting up in the morning. And saying today we're colouring lines.
1: It's it's quite difficult to explain, <laughs> but
0: but we'll augment it with pictures.
1: <laughs> that will be quite helpful, I think. Um, so, firstly, to explain. The ecosystem
0: I think is, is probably the most important thing. See, this thing. is the scientist in them coming out. So like, you've jumped you've jumped to the cool shit. <laughs> <laughs> let's, go let's, let's go back. We need to we need to create ecosystems first for, for lines to exist. You're right, Villain. Let's talk about ecosystems.
1: So the Zambezi Delta ecosystem, it's it then kind of the name says it. So it's a Delta ecosystem. So it's a it largely consists of a floodplain. Um, the floodplain is basically grassland that is inundated with water for Six to eight months of the year, it's huge. It's and yeah, oh, we it's saw huge. it today. Exactly. Wow. And and the entire ecosystem is it, it covers just under a million hectares, which is incredibly large in size. And um, and the road network within the concessions, with within the area, are fairly limited because of the fact that it's there's a large portion that's that's floodplain that you just cannot drive drive with a vehicle, which in other areas you're able to do, and so. You're able to drive a road, dart the animal next to the vehicle, collar the line. Fairly, fairly simple. So out here, we don't have that luxury. <laughs> we we have to use helicopters to, to firstly track our lines and then also to to collar them. And so we're very fortunate to have um, a few helicopters. Which we can use um, for for tracking. We've got a, a Robinson Twenty Two, which is a, a small little small little thing. Um, we call it the dung beetle. Um <laughs> well, because of how
0: it moves around in the wind. I don't know if I'm. Lo- <laughs> you can.
1: I, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this on uh, <laughs> on this channel, but uh, it's uh, it's it's kind of a inside joke. It's it's a dung beetle because you got to know your shit to fly. It.
0: <laughs> I can see that because
1: yeah. uh, in the wind that thing does. It becomes a little bit like a ragdoll if you. If you don't, uh, if you don't know too well, but um, so we've got a small helicopter that we use for for actually tracking the lions, um, and then we've got a few bigger helicopters that we use to to dart, and so with the darting, it can be it can be a smooth operation, but it can also be challenging. And um, this afternoon we we tried to to dart one of these lions, and she was just giving us sticks. Uh, she she was sticking to a forest area you try and move her around try and work her with the helicopter to try and get her in a place that you can dart her and um sometimes they just don't respond to the helicopter so even with the helicopters you have challenges but in a if i can put it in a a general context of of how we go about actually darting darting the the line is if the line has a gps collar on her already we can actually have a GPS point position, a waypoint, and we can fly to that to that position, and we locate the individual that we that we need to, to dart to to recolor or to put a new collar on. Um, and with that, generally speaking, you've got one helicopter that's that's flying, um, that's that's looking for the, searching for the line, and that will do the darting. And um, you usually. This is a little bit more on the technical side. Is you usually want to have the line in a, in a bit of a run, so that you can dart it from from the backside. I um, noticed
0: that today, yeah.
1: Yeah, so and and uh, it's not easy. <laughs> the the lines are often running f- at full speed. Um, the helicopter is is following. Um, firstly, the he- the the pilot has to know. No, he's he's uh how to do. He it. needs his shit. He needs another shit. Exactly. So <laughs> <laughs>
0: exactly. I mean, you the pilots you have here are just some of the yeah. most insanely good pilots. Exactly. The most insanely good pilots I've ever flown with. Yeah.
1: So i must say one of them does have roughly about 10,000 hours of, of flying time which is quite a quite a major milestone I love for Peter Peter, Peter yeah. Yeah.
4: I believe that qualifies you as a master yes. in, in and I forget who said that that it takes 10,000 hours to
0: Oh yeah of course yeah for anything Yeah yeah for any wow
1: And also when when it comes to game work it's 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 almost less about uh, particularly in the game game capture game darting industry it's it's a lot more about knowing the animals and, and, you know, being a good pilot, it kind of comes comes with time. But knowing the animals is is probably the most important thing.
0: Because you've got to be able to read them. Yeah? Exactly. So, so if he you know- knows, like, lines moving this direction is probably going to cut like that. Because you've got somebody out the back of the helicopter, the vet. Exactly. With his finger on the trigger, waiting for that tiny, tiny, tiny window to be able to put a dart. In the back end of a lion,
1: exactly, and so so fortunately we have <laughs> we've got a few pilots that that are really experienced, um, and we I'm going to name drop as well. <laughs> Go for it. Um, we've got uh, an incredible vet um, that is based in, in Maputo in, in Mozambique. Uh, his name is Doctor Joao Almeida, and um, he's done most of our our uh, darting and and colouring of of lions, elephants, um, and a bunch of other species as well and um, he's just you know really confident so he's the guy that sits behind the pilot and he's darting out of the helicopter as the pilot's getting closer to to that cat
0: now there's a dude who's enthused by his job (laughs) I was watching him today in the helicopter and I was like you love every second of this like (laughs) you could see him savoring it yeah
4: and, yeah, Joao's got a lot of Portuguese swagger, for sure.
0: <laughs> of
1: course. You can't, you can't be in Mozambique without it. Yeah,
0: <laughs> I almost feel like he probably would have been, like, a high-end footballer if he wasn't doing this. Yeah, I, <laughs>
4: I asked him if he liked football. He goes, I would not be Portuguese if I did not. <laughs> well, there you go. Yeah. <laughs>
0: um, and then from, from, from that point, the dart goes off. It's a successful hit. What's next?
1: Well, f- yeah, if it's a successful hit, you are... Pretty happy at that moment um often the dot does does end up missing missing the uh, the line
4: um, but, but to be fair in the four collarings that have happened five collarings in the last Three days, he said every single one. Exactly, he has not missed since we've been he
0: didn't here. This one today, one, one we're, minute. We're, we're oh, <laughs> but, but you've also darted an elephant. I mean, an elephant's pretty big. but yeah. Still, I mean, it's still difficult. <laughs> yeah. No, um. But an elephant as well.
1: Because I mean, you're moving in a moving.
0: Yeah. Uh, object. I or know. You, trying you're to helicopter- film from one of those bloody things, it's like <laughs> it's almost impossible. It's vibrating yeah. and swishing and.
1: No, it's 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 very challenging. But so let's let's take the example of you. You've darted the animal. So the animal's been darted. It's it looks like a good dart. The dart's gone gone in the rump, in in the leg somewhere, um, which means it's it's in the muscle. The the drug inside the dart, which is it's a specific combination of drugs with a specific dosage. The dosage varies based on whether it's uh, an adult, a youngster, um, a male or a female, um, and it it's kind of more on the size of of the animal, um, and so the the dosage and and the combination of drugs um will take roughly the, the one that that dr joelle uses it'll take roughly around six six to eight minutes for the animal to to fully be sedated um and so as you as you witnessed um with with the lion colorings is w- what you end up doing is you you would like that animal not to go and hide in a bush because if that animal is not fully a, fully asleep you have to walk in there and 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 confront that animal on foot which is, is not the safest thing to do. So ideally what you would like to do what the pilots the pilot's job is to try and circle around the lion and try and position the lion in a, in a place where it's fairly open and it's, it's minimal risk to the people on the ground walking in if that makes sense yeah.
0: and, and, and this is why today it was really th- thick thick grass. I mean, some of it was like as high as our heads. You went in with some safety. Yes, we did. (laughs) After Joao successfully darted the targeted male lion, we landed in the helicopter and moved in through the tall grasses, carefully edging towards where we'd seen him go down. Joao gave me the backstory of the lion, which now lay at our feet. Apart from the steady rise and fall of his chest, he lay motionless. Yet the immense power and grandeur of this animal was moving.
5: So this lion and his brother, we assume his brother, a coalition of two males. They, we think uh, about last year, we got a report from a community in southern Mozambique. And um, about two lions walking amongst the community and they killed two cows. And the people were really scared. Guys, just please, Really keep it, keep it down with this one. And our team actually, our two Mozambique vets deployed that same night. They managed to dart the two lions. um, And then they drove them for about five hours to uh, an enclosure where we have in Karingani game reserve, which is a partner and he has enclosure for this type of situations. So we put the animals in the enclosure, not knowing what to do and um, started making contacts and got in touch with the Zambezi Delta, told them about the story. It was a perfect fit because there was not many mature males uh, in the Delta ecosystem. And so with Ivan, we put together the translocation operation with the support of the Cabela Family Foundation and uh, released the two animals in November last year. And they're growing, they're together with females. They probably have, um, are gonna be the fathers of cubs. So it's a success story that doesn't happen a lot um and proves many theories wrong.
1: Back so on, yeah. so we do, we do take raffles with if we if we because go it can in. go wrong. I mean we're <laughs> kind of
0: joking around here but <laughs> exactly. like this is actually it's I'm I'm amazed how relaxed everybody is and I, I guess mm. that's just a sign of the professionalism and skill and the fact that you guys have done it a lot of times. But yeah. there's a lot of things that can go wrong.
1: No yeah, exactly. And I think the most important thing what's what's worse than fear is is complacency. If you get used to used to the setup and Every time you dart a line, you think that line's down. If you're not, if you're not paying attention to that animal, things can go wrong, and that's when when the rifles are used. But if you're if you're paying attention and you're watching the animal's behavior, so for example, if you if the if the lion is is 50 yards away, f- 50 meters away, and you can see the animal, you wait first, you give it a second. You don't walk directly up to the animal if you have a stick or a you know something something to throw at at the at the animal you try and hit it on the rump, not in the face <laughs> that would be quite yeah you know, not not too great <laughs> but you try and hit it on on the leg just to see if it reacts to that because with the the drug combination that that dr. Joel uses it's it's quite the animal's still quite sensitive to to stimulus so whether it's sound um, visual stimulus so lights in, in the eyes um uh, you know, s- some kind of noise that that, that causes them to it, it causes them to wake up for a few seconds and during that period it's, it's a dangerous period.
0: You only need a few seconds with a lion or a leopard Exactly. <laughs> Things go wrong.
1: Split seconds <laughs> just get the
5: dart Guys, if by any chance he stands and walks everyone just stay quiet. He's going to walk away from us, okay? It can happen very, very low chance but if you keep it quiet and work calmly it won't happen just the stimulus of a of people. So let's all stay on the same side. If that happens, just stay. Stay put.
0: But long before any of this was possible, the ambitious project to reintroduce 24 lines to the area had to be funded. For this, Ivan Carter approached Dan Cabela, executive director of the Cabela
2: Family Foundation. And so Dan asked me some really, really hard questions. And he said, look, how do you know it's going to be successful? I said, well, we don't. He said, why do you think that this is possible. And I showed him the science. We showed him the documents. We showed him the evidence. We showed him the budget, which made him his eyes go wide and he swallowed hard. (laughs) And he said, okay, well, you know what? We are can do kind of people. We pride ourselves in being conservationists first. Let's try this. And so, you know, when, when I drove away from that house in Sydney, Nebraska, you feel like you've just received a positive pregnancy test. Because <laughs> you're pregnant, yeah. you're gonna have a baby. Yeah. Uh, uh, up to now, it's all planning and whatever. Suddenly, someone has said they're gonna write the check. Guess what? We're gonna have to get our stuff together, and make it happen. So, as I say, that that led to releasing Twenty Four Lions here in 2018, which was a giant deal, also fraught with worry of its success. Here we are, three years later. To fast forward to today. We've got just around 70 animals. The success of that is what's given us the boldness to now try a much more sensitive species. We don't wanna wait too long for the cheetahs because cheetahs, one of the big enemies of cheetahs is lions. And so if we waited until the lions are fully populated, the cheetahs wouldn't have a chance. And so there are a lot of landscapes across Africa where cheetahs have learned to live with lions. They're just agile and, and they keep away from them. And so introducing these cheetahs at a time where the lions are not dominating the landscape, they're still growing, is, is the perfect time, we believe. And so it, it's certainly, we're not out of the woods, but we've gone through some of the very, very difficult steps so far. And, and I think we're, we're off on the right track anyway.
0: And throughout the whole process, Dan was there. Seeing that dollars for conservation were making a difference on the ground, when the lions were brought here, it's my understanding from looking at the pictures that they were just—and this might, this will seem insane to people listening—that they were tranquilized and then just laid out in the back of a, a plane. They weren't in cages or boxes or well, anything. That, they were all laid out in the back of the plane.
6: That—that's the absolute truth. <laughs> 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 and luckily, there was a vet on it, each plane to top them off if they started to move around a little bit. Um, but, but uh, yeah, an entirely different process uh, with the lions. Yeah,
0: What was it like for you here seeing those lions get off the plane?
6: I mean, a realization that we've really accomplished something. I mean, honestly. For lions and wildlife and this ecosystem, uh, I mean, we have the potential with that lion release to increase the wild lion population by 10%. I mean, that's...
4: And just to qualify what you're saying for people listening, that's globally, that's not just in Mozambique. That's, right. that's, that's right. Yeah.
6: And that's the goal. You know, uh, to me, that's pretty impactful. You know, the, 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 huge. Pro- the problem is not, you know, are there enough lions? The problem is, is there enough space for lions? Yeah. And there's just really not a whole lot of places like this anymore. So it is so incredibly important to protect this
0: ecosystem. And the daily work required to make this happen came sharply into focus just days after the first lions were released, as Mark told us.
3: I mean, within a week of releasing the lions, the first lion was in a gin trap. I can't tell you how devastating it was and how much much more hands-on we became and how we we upped the anti-poaching. A lion would move in an area. The anti-poaching would immediately go to that area and sweep the area and make sure there was no poaching. And you know, So the lions are a lot more robust than cheetahs. Um, I believe. I don't know a lot about cheetahs, and uh, it's going to be a steep learning curve. Good thing to, you've got Vincent there yeah, on yeah, call. Vincent, know, absolutely. Because yeah, there's a man
4: who knows pretty much everything there is to know about cheetahs? Yeah.
3: So I think that right now we just got to batten down the hatches and make absolutely sure the cheetahs work. It's going to be a bit of a long haul. We've only got four females. Ideally, we'd like to have probably eight. So we'll, we hope to bring in a couple more in the future. And I think it'll probably be a good five-year project to get them to where we want them. Both the
0: cheetah and lion relocations here represented two of the largest conservation wins and range expansions in more than a generation. And yet, there was something which felt a little odd about this. None of it had been backed by the big-ticket names of the conservation world. I asked Ivan Carter why this was the case. I'm going to ask you a difficult question here. Um, with all the massive NGOs that exist around the world that are focused on conservation and wildlife, why has it taken a family like the Cabela's to make something as amazing as this happen, where it hasn't happened before?
2: You know, Byron, that's a really solid question. You know, our foundation, let me back out of this. Our foundation, our pay line is more wildlife and a healthier ecosystem. If your efforts are not leading to more wildlife and a healthier ecosystem, the cold, hard truth is that it's wasted time. And so if you phone an NGO and say, I would like to put money into pangolin conservation, and they say, yes, yes, we do that can you show me how you are increasing the pangolins' home range and the number of pangolins in healthy ecosystems? If you get a silence on the end of the phone, phone somebody else because they need to know like that how their efforts are increasing landscapes. And unfortunately, Byron, the cold, hard truth of it is most NGOs have become a business where they're in the business of selling hope. They sell hope. And fear. And fear. Mm. Hope and fear. So... The last blue whale is about to die. Send us your money and we will save them. Okay, how? Well, I don't know, sir, but send us your money and we'll save them. I, no, I, I'd i like to know how and show me your track record. Ha, have your efforts result in more blue whales because you told me there's only one.
4: <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: And so you can go round and round like that on just fill in the gap, whether it's a blue whale or, or you know, a golden jackal or whatever it might be. A lot of these NGOs focus on elephants or gorillas or whales or whatever. But really, when you ask the hard question, have your efforts led to more of those and more healthy landscape for them to live in, you get crickets on the end of the phone.
0: Because protecting what exists now is not enough.
2: No. Because that's just holding the status quo at a really low baseline. (laughs) It really is. And so, if you look at what's happened in this area, if I show you the statistics of I've just explained, 44 sable to over three and a half thousand. That seems remarkable. It is. And it's taken, so we as a foundation put in about $650,000 into this landscape. The, our, our major partner with that is the Cabela Family Foundation, who support all of the lion stuff, a proportion of the anti-poaching and, and all of that good stuff. They support the clinic. They support a bunch of the community stuff. But Byron, we don't have an office Neither does the Cabela Family Foundation. We don't have overheads. We have conservation return. And what I say is that we pride ourselves in a conservation return on your investment. And so the Cabela Family Foundation, what they've achieved here for Lion is the greatest win for Lion of every single NGO on the planet. It was an intense week on the
0: ground for Tyler and I. So many conversations with incredible people more information than we could possibly take in, and to do this in an ecosystem as rich as this was, is a great privilege. Aside from the lions and cheetah, there was another project underway that week, and this one took place at night, with the use of dogs. We were going to collar a leopard. Negative to the downstate uh,
5: Just come directly to where you hear the hounds in that van. Uh, the grass is a little bit tall, but just around about 400
6: Okay, copy, so we're gonna walk through the tree line and then into the camp.
0: So at 2 a.m. on the fifth night in camp, I was struggling to fall asleep in my tent when I hear radio chatter from the camp office. The houndsman and his team, who had left just on last light seven hours earlier, had successfully treed a leopard. Now, the capture team had to race to the location to tranquilize this most secretive of the big cats.
3: Yes, drive us to the tree line and to walk Okay, copy.
6: And we'll just get to that tree line and then walk in, and then they're in that pan on the other side. The grass is quite tall and we'll just go through there. Yeah.
0: But before we get any deeper into that night, it was important to me that I understood the purpose of collaring animals. For that, I turned to Willem, in charge of the ongoing monitoring programs.
1: Flying choppers around is is not it's not cheap. Um, secondly, the the collars that we're purchasing are also not cheap. Um, and then following on on that is you've got the the tracking of of the animals, which is also in, a, in as I said in the in the dung beetle, um, which is also you need you need funding to be able to have that helicopter in the air to be able to track the lions. Um, so. All of this is—it's not cheap, and I guess the question is: Why do it? Why do you actually? What is the purpose of of colouring the lions? What you know? Why can't we just let them go? Yeah. And so, especially when
0: they're doing so well.
1: Exactly. Yeah. But the thing is, we only know they're doing well because we've coloured them. So there's always that saying of knowledge is power, and I think with the more you know, the more you can react, the more you can conserve, the more you can manage, and so. By colouring these lines, we can see exactly where their home ranges are. We know exactly which prides are moving where, how they're interacting with each other, um, whether there's mating going on, whether there's reproductive events going on. For example, if if a, a female lioness is, is is showing a star-shaped pattern, we know that lion, that lioness has got cubs. Um, we can follow up, make sure that the cubs are fine. Um, we've had, you know, if we we could even follow a few. Events of infanticide, which is which is when a uh, another male lion comes and and kills the cubs of a female because it's not his, um, and that's, oh, So
0: you've seen that happen here. I know that it happens, but you've actually been able to log we, that.
1: We haven't witnessed it, but w- based on the collars we we know that it happened because one of the females was showing star-shaped pattern, and another male came in straight into where that female was with the cub. We witnessed that cub that day. That night he came in. And uh the day after the female started moving in long stretches and in a in a continuous pattern, not in a star shaped pattern anymore. Cup gone. Cup gone.
0: Amazing. And you, the the incredible thing is you're able to tell this with some pings of data exactly. being uploaded to exactly. the
1: sky. Yeah. And and following up as well. Yeah. So I think we we from our side we just keep praising the Cabela Family Foundation for funding the the collars as well as the the tracking because without that with such a vast landscape it's as I said it's it's it, about a million hectares that'd be impossible it's which I think if my con- conversion is correct I think it's just over two million acres
4: yeah it's it's almost it's about double I think for yeah, acres yeah. yeah
1: um and uh, you know it's a massive area there's no fences which makes this place really incredible um most most places in in or a lot of places in southern Africa are fenced because that that prevents the animals from moving out, but it takes away the wildness and it takes away the fact that the animals can can move out of the area and you know kind of utilize a broader area than being restricted to a specific area, you know, with with the fencing. So we don't know if these lions are going to move out of the area. They probably will at some stage, but we'll only know if we have collars on them. Um, and at the end of the day, we don't really want to put a collar on every individual. It, there's there's a lot of Beauty in in seeing an uncolored lion in an open landscape—it's it's something really special. We've been able to witness that now with with the the second generation of of cubs being born, um, and some have reached adulthood already, and they're starting to disperse. And so that's really incredible to see. Um, but our kind of main goal is to make sure that we have the prides, the which are made up of the females and and their cubs, their offspring. Is to have those pri- as many of the prides as possible monitored, so that we can see how they expand, how they how they split off, how they come together, um, and that then helps us provide the that that provides us with the data, and we can use that data to inform management of of how we actually conserve the species going forward into the future. Because it's cool to bring in lions, but the long-term monitoring is actually what what will make sure that we
0: can make management decisions. The monitoring not only allows the team at Zambezi Delta Safaris to better protect lions, it also factors into reducing the human-wildlife conflict. Across Africa, from elephants to lions, this is a daily problem and represents the coalface of our interaction with nature in shared landscapes outside of protected fenced areas. Shual gave us an example of how people come into conflict with lions as they leave what is arguably Africa's most famous national park, Kruger, in South Africa.
5: With lions we do the same. Uh, We have a lot of lions crossing, especially from Kruger National Park into Mozambique. At that age that they disperse, about three years old, Kruger is at capacity and so the animals disperse into Mozambique and they find themselves in, in community areas where there's cattle there's nothing else to eat so they chow cattle and the people are scared etc and then what we try to do is if, if we identify animals like that there are dispersal so it's, it's not an old male without teeth and injured that one must be put down because if I bring it here it's going to cause problems here as well uh, but we try, we try to simulate that dispersal um, movement By bringing animals to areas that um, can provide um, the space and the habitat for the for those dispersals to find new territory and new homes, and we did this last year and it worked very well.
0: So and and that line that I darted with you this afternoon, uh, this afternoon or this morning, that was an example of that, was it? Correct.
5: Yeah, the two brothers. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but it goes against. I mean, you read if you if you Google um, human human predator conflict and translocation, everyone says it doesn't work. Beca-
0: On what basis? Why? Why historically? On the basis
5: be, because historically, it's being done in a different way, and it's it's all about how you see things and how you you know what what you identify as it works or it doesn't. But most of the examples of those papers are either India with tigers where the national parks are surrounded by cities and a, a, a tiger leaves leaves that, that protected area and Charles cattle and then they bring it back to that same area. And obviously it will keep on doing that because it's leaving in the first place for some reason. We don't do that. Um, or or an old a old lion or a leopard that simply has no capacity to hunt naturally so it finds an easier prey and keeps on doing that. Um we, we do not do that. So identify animals that are dispersals. They found themselves in a the wrong situation, in a wrong area. And you identify, And then the, the other critical component is where you're going to release them. You're not going to take them back to where they came out because they're going to just come out again. You're, and Mozambique has most of the protected areas or concessions in Mozambique are going through a restoration phase or rewilding phase. And so sort of... Getting ready for predators, prey population is increasing, getting ready for predators, and so it's very easy to get those lions and and translocate them to these areas that are actually what they're looking for. So in that sense it works, we've
0: proved it many times that it works. It was later that night, after sitting down to have this conversation with Joao, that we got the call to mount up and head out after the leopard. As we hear now, the team has arrived on location, 30 minutes from camp, the dogs baying in the background.
5: Okay, and and,
1: and plan, plan, of action. As if, when the cat, if the cat jumps. Yeah, so if the cat, cat jumps, jumps, um,
5: I think we'll have the best answer of life. And then as Kay. soon as the, the cat uh, jumps, then life must let the hounds go so Kay.
6: that they can chase the cat. Okay. Run it down. And, there's,
1: and there's the rest of a last little little Yeah, she's big. <coughs> I'm guessing about 40 k's. <coughs> at least.
6: When did you start running?
1: Uh, I think we started
5: about 11 o'clock. We found the track, yeah. Uh, no, half past ten we found the track. Jumped the first three and then they chased it maybe about 80 yards. <coughs> And then she climbed the second tree. So we're walking without torches so that we're not too conspicuous and put too much pressure on her.
6: And I'll show you guys with the cameras where the cat is in the tree. It's nice and open, so it's got a good shot. Before we shoot, yeah. Okay. Because she must
0: fall asleep in the tree. Tell me what that experience is like, darting a leopard in the dark, having treated with dogs. Um...
5: I think I probably have a different perspective than anyone else or at least most of the people there. Maybe Conrad has a similar to mine, which is, you know, I'm doing my job and I've done it before. And I have two kids and a wife and I I like my life. And obviously what we did yesterday is quite risky if you start thinking about it. So, you know, the main exercise for me before this is just, you know, get the job done and trust who's, who's with you and trust the team. Um... Yeah, we were, so yesterday, so I'm, I'm basically providing wildlife veterinary services to immobilize um, several animals during this week, but one of them was a leopard, um, and he mobilized a leopard to be able to deploy a satellite collar that will then help um, a research project on, on leopards in this area, and um, the method we used, it's quite novel, I think we're probably the only people doing it, uh, which is using a, a pack of, of tracking dogs. To follow the tracks of leopards that are found during the night on the roads, and um, and as the as the dogs start chasing the leopard, the instinct of the leopard is to climb a tree and then it stays there. And so, yeah, once the leopard was on the tree, um, it's actually so because you know I'm saying this 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 method, and I I really enjoy this method because I've caught leopards in many other ways but the most common way to catch leopards for this type of, of exercise is deploying uh, um, cage traps. And you put a bait in, you put a cage trap or several cage traps and then <clears throat> the idea is that the leopard comes in and it, it actions a mechanism and, and gets trapped in the cage. But then it stresses. It stresses a lot. It's in a cage and then you approach with vehicles and it bites the cage and sometimes you only check the cage the next day. Um And so what we did yesterday is for me by far the best method because it's quick, wild animals are made to be able to deal with short moments of intense stress, which is what happened yesterday. But as the stress gets prolonged, for example, in in cage traps, that's when animals um, start, the stress starts really having an implication in health.
0: Once everyone had their orders, Joao, Kunrad and fellow filmmaker Keenan moved in closer to the leopard for the shot. Stood back from the tree about 70 meters. I focused on getting a wider angle with my camera, trying to capture both the dart and the leopard. With the commotion of the dogs still baying around us, the shot went off.
5: And so, so yeah, the dog, the leopard was treated darted the leopard the leopard came down the tree uh, but then the
0: dogs found it quickly and we proceeded with the job and then it, it actually went up another tree yes because yeah. there's a, a whole Correct, piece yeah. of logistics that needs to happen very quickly yes. so that that leopard doesn't hurt itself
5: yeah so it climbed up another tree it was already feeling the drug when you saw it on the second tree so then we we grabbed a, a net a three by three net with five guys on each around the net and sort of try to position the net so that when the cat falls, falls on the net, not on the floor, because that could potentially kill him. I think yesterday you wouldn't. um, It wasn't that high. Um, But yeah, that's the procedure. And then you sort of expect it to fall. And when it falls, the stress of the of the fall in being around us sort of reverses a bit of the anesthesia, so it woke up again. And then... Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then a rodeo happened. Yeah, a little bit of a rodeo. But, I mean, in the end, it it, it went really well. Yeah. Um, I continue to vouch for this method, um, which came from from hunting methods.
0: With the leopard successfully tranquilized, the team get quickly to work, fitting the collar and taking measurements they will use to add to their monitoring database.
1: Put it in the hole. 48 and
2: a half. Yeah, the Next circumference, comfort, 48 and a half. Yeah, as well.
1: but, uh, do you reckon we uh, not going to grow much more, eh? Yeah, got oh, she's nice <laughs> <and> She's <laughs> really, really <laughs> just <laughs> nice, nice. Those, these things slip. Yeah, it's fine. It's fine. I don't think it's too dark, eh?
0: I mean, these are these are the, this is the same pack. This this pack does Correct. sometimes get used for hunting. Correct. Yeah. 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 I mean, you you alluded to the the risk and, and danger of it, and we were kind of jerking around a little bit. But just just explain the gravity of this particular species, because it's not something you want to mess with or get wrong.
5: No, and probably leopards are one of the very few, if not only, species that. If given the chance to run or to attack, they will normally choose to attack. That's why. they're So, yeah, you don't mess around with a leopard. Uh, I'd much rather work with lions in this type of situation than leopards. But I think um, it's just a bit overwhelming for the animal, the dogs. Um, and for us, the, the dogs are our, our protection. And, and yeah, from all the, the work that Conrad has done over the years, he never had any any people getting hurt. So
0: It's amazing, just considering you a how much he does it. Exactly, yeah. But you can tell he's a very skilled houndsman. Yeah. is that where they, they get called here, hounds?
5: Probably. Yeah. yeah, not even sure. I call him a Viking because that's what looks <laughs> he looks like—a like yeah. Viking mm-hmm. there with his spear. So I think, actually, I think the leopard fears Conrad, not the dogs.
4: Yeah, <laughs> we we were joking about Game of Thrones, and I feel like for anyone lis- listening who is familiar with Game of Thrones, I feel like. Conrad would be house Bolton.
5: Yes, yeah, 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 <laughs> yes. Exactly yeah. What say, yeah. I actually asked him for him to be present in the first three dates of my daughter. Just
0: stay there in the <laughs> That's corner right. with a spear. Yeah, yeah.
4: yeah. Time is up. <laughs> Tap on the glass.
0: <laughs> of course, it was important to ask the question we had posed to Willem about collaring lions. What indeed is the purpose of going to this effort?
5: The first question I ask when I'm um, hired to do this type of work is, okay, what's what's the plan then? Because there's a lot of people colouring for fun or colouring without a plan and I don't, you know, I don't play with that. Um, but obviously I know these guys have been working with them and I'm not the best person to answer that question, Willem will be or Dave, but I do know that um, ultimately what they want to know is how is the leopard population in Kotari 11 um, evolving? Is it recovering? Is it stable? Is it a population that's healthy, that has a proportion of females that tell you that you know they they have a sustainable hunting quota and so what they're trying to do is to do it right in terms of how how they hunt um, how they hunt leopard how they manage uh, their leopard population and so it will ultimately benefit the ecosystem.
0: As we came to an end of our time in Mozambique there seemed little question that what had been achieved here and the work that was still being undertaken was a massive win for conservation. However, the uncomfortable truth, as Ivan had put it, was that this was built on a sustainable utilization model, where, yes, hunting, and what many people refer to as trophy hunting, takes place. There's been this increasing uh, conversation and focus on sustainability and the sustainable use of natural resources. But wildlife always seems to kind of be excluded in that. Because, I, because in my mind, people don't like the idea of utilizing wildlife. But we're very happy to utilize
2: livestock. So, Baron, this is an interesting conversation. I, I, I like this stuff a lot. I think it's really simple. Humans have reached critical mass. And for the first time ever in history, every one of us that is socially aware, that is aware of our environment has seen the negative pressures on that environment, whether it's plastic in the oceans, whether it's you know it's, it's overfishing, whatever it is. We've all seen these negative impacts that did not exist when I was a kid because we hadn't reached critical mass yet. And when you look at, in my lifetime, I'm 50 years old. In my lifetime, in the last 50 years, what's happened to the human population, that curve is going through the sky and it's not showing any sign of slowing down. And so I think that your average cognizant human that's socially aware says, wow, this planet's under pressure. But the interesting thing is we are not hardwired to care about anything that doesn't affect us. And I really honestly believe that until we switch on the faucet in your home and plastic comes out, people won't care about plastic. It's got to affect that person directly for them to stop using it because we've proven that. We only start waving, it. so so think in 2016, the last male northern white rhino died. Mm. That's not a little mouse that no one knew, it's an animal the size of your dining room table. We are so busy trying to make our smartphone batteries last longer that we forgot about this animal the size of your dining room table that slipped off the brink of extinction in modern times. That's not excusable. It really isn't, it comes back a little bit into how our conversations start about white cheetahs. Why anything? And so I think as humanity, we've really become very cognizant of what we're doing to this planet. There's 8 billion of us today, which is a massive number of people. And, you know, then you you come to, why could we, we're happy to eat livestock, but we're not happy to eat a kudu. You know, 96% of all mammals on earth are humans and their livestock and pets. 96%, so everything from a chimpanzee to a bat from a from an elephant to a whale to a is is every other mammal represents only four percent. So when you start looking at those kind of statistics, so then you say you you hear people say, well, I would never eat a whitetail because I think it's cruel. Okay, cool. So you'll eat a cow, but in order for that cow to exist, all of the wildlife has to be eliminated first, and that's fine because they don't see it. Mm. Then the cow, so because they feel like nothing's dying. There's no bloodshed for that, but that's. That's living in blinkers. Yeah, and so the, the, the most common large animal on the planet is a cow. Why is that? Very simple. Because we can buy it, we can sell it, we can trade it, it has value to us. If you had the same thing with giraffes where you could buy and sell and trade them and own them and eat them, and we'd have giraffes instead of cows. And everyone would go, wow, there's this really rare thing, it's called a cow, and you know people <laughs> used to eat it, now all we've got is giraffes. Because it's true. And, you know, I I wrote a story once called Rhinos Are Like Potatoes. Imagine if they outlawed potatoes today, which is one of the most widespreadly grown vegetables, and they outlawed it. And they said, you are no longer allowed to trade it. It's going to be heavily protected. It can't cross international boundaries. It's not allowed to be sold in stores. You are not allowed to even own a potato. How quickly would the farmers who grow millions of potatoes stop growing potatoes? Today. Mm -hmm they'd stop and they'd grow carrots. And in a very short space of time, potatoes would be endangered because they have no value. And that's exactly what's happened to the rhino. And so I think there's a lot of parallels if you explain it through these analogies that hopefully people can understand. Because rhino were brought back from the brink of extinction already once through trade. Now we're anti-trade and everyone's trying to get rid of their rhinos again because they're a liability instead of an asset.
0: When we hear of wildlife trade across the media and news channels, it is often in reference to the illegal trade, which I will refer to here as trafficked wildlife, as this is an illegal activity, unregulated by the authorities. Wildlife trade, on the other hand, done legally, is around us every day, from the fish we eat to the timber and our furniture. It is trade in products produced in nature. Trade in itself is not a problem, as long as it's accompanied by sufficient regulation which can be enforced to ensure the sustainable utilization. We all exist on this planet, using resources every moment we are alive. The overarching consideration we should all be thinking of is how do we do this without negatively impacting future generations? This is the very foundation of sustainability. As Ivan continued to explain, trade can provide a massive
2: conservation win. South America got down to less than 10 animals and the Vesuna. And they decided that, well, let's try and trade because everyone wants their wool. And now there's over a million of them because of trade. They're all in private hands and they're all... They're all traded. The crocodile industry for, was nearly wiped out by, by the illegal trade for the leather industry. Now you've got crocodile farms all over Africa. everywhere, And there's millions of crocodiles. Yeah. And they were nearly extinct. And so there's several real live examples. The rhinos that, that almost crashed. There were less than 100 individuals. And they went back up to 35,000 southern white rhinos because of trade. And so it's this uncomfortable truth that trade works. And so, very often people say, Well, can't we just teach the Chinese people to not use rhino horn? And if it's a lady that's saying that, I'll look and I'll say, Let's talk about your diamond. And she'll look and she'll take a step back. I'll say, Where did that diamond come from? Oh, uh, my husband gave it to me for a wedding, whatever. Okay, well, that's cool. Where did it come from? Well, I don't know. Well, did you see the movie Blood Diamond? <laughs> no, I didn't see that movie. And? Well, I'm sure this one didn't come from there. Well, how do you know? Well, it just didn't. So here's a product that a Western person has put such value on. We can even make them in a laboratory in the form of cubic zirconias, but we still want the real thing, even if we know that kids in the third world are dying because we are removed from it. And so as human beings, we are hardwired to to be absorbed in our self-satisfaction and so how would you expect a Chinese person with 15,000 years of culture yeah. of utilizing rhino horn, why would they turn away from it? We do the same thing with different things. And so, oh no, but rhino horn results in pain for the animal. Well, diamonds result in pain for people. Mm. There's no different. And so when we draw these parallels, it becomes a very uncomfortable conversation for the people wanting the comforting lies. you know. And so I think that you know, very often at the end of these these kind of podcasts, I get a bunch of hate mail because I talk fairly directly. I say, no problem, I don't care if you hate me. But if you hate me for telling the truth, I'm actually pretty pretty proud of that.
0: As our time in Mozambique drew to a close, we had a lot to digest. Conservation is complex and nuanced and difficult. It requires not only money, but funds directed to the right people who have a long-term vision. Ultimately, we need to think of ourselves as part of nature if we are to create landscapes where wildlife still has a place. Tyler and I had increasingly come to realise the importance of conservation initiatives at the ecosystem level, where decisions are made for the species and habitat and not just the individual. What was clear as we finished up our conversation with Dan Cabela is that there is a will for collaborative working and in that way we can really make a difference for conservation around the world.
4: You guys have stepped up in a huge way, leading by example, and and I hope personally that not only hunting-based conservation groups or foundations step up, but that the other side, you know, steps up as well. And, that, and me that, too. I mean, yeah.
0: for me, that's the thing. Is I, the, we talk about we were talking about division within the hunting community and the, what we've seen there is I think that this division globally between foundations and NGOs, some that are backed by hunting, some that don't want anything to do with it, is just crazy when we all want the same thing. Exactly. And how amazing would it be to integrate some of this work together? Maybe philosophically there's differences, but for a positive outcome and a positive end goal, that everybody can support more lions in Africa, more cheetahs across greater range. I mean, who can't support that? I totally agree with that. I I mean, at the end of the day, if you have the potential
6: to expand the wild cheetah range by 33%, which is what we have here. Wow. I mean...
0: 33%.
6: I mean, why wouldn't we all agree that that's a good thing? Yeah. It, do, it doesn't really, you, you, like you said, philosophical differences at one time, you know, that's what created great ideas. You know, I mean, now it's just divisive.
0: So, I, and I'm, I'm putting you on the spot here, but I would imagine that you would, with open arms, just based on this conversation, love to co- collaborate with other NGOs who maybe in the past have had negative views on hunting if you could drive forward positive conservation.
6: Absolutely. Without a question.
0: This is the last episode of our special limited series from Mozambique. We would like to thank everyone involved in making this possible. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed it and we would love to hear your feedback. You can find me on social media at Byron J. Pace, and if you want to see more of this work, head over to modernhuntsman.com and also check out Modern Huntsman across all the social media platforms.